Big Buck Registries Deer Hunting Podcast, episode number 163, Nikki Boxler. Deer hunting New York dairy country, the farmer's daughter, tractor scouting, and sap wars. Please support our sponsors as they make this show possible. Today's show is sponsored by Morse's Sporting Goods. Big Buck Registry is a virtual museum of hunting stories. We preserve a piece of Americana by interviewing and recording hunters about their hunts and experiences from across the country. And who knows, maybe we'll learn a thing or two along the way that'll help us take our hunt to the next level. Hi, this is Jared Scheffler from Whitetail Adrenaline. You're listening to my favorite hunting podcast ever, Jay and Dusty on the Big Buck Registry's Big Buck Podcast. I'm T.R. Walters. I'm a school teacher from Delton, Michigan. You're about to push play on my most favorite podcast on the internet, Big Buck Registry Deer Hunting Podcast. This is Gordon Whittington, Editor-in-Chief at North American Whitetail Magazine, and you're about to listen to another great episode of the Big Buck Registry Deer Hunting Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Big Buck Registry's Deer Hunting Podcast. I am psyched that you are here with me right now. My name is Jay. I'm I've been here for a while, and every time I get on this microphone, I like to talk about deer hunting, and there's nothing I'd rather be doing with you right now than discussing deer hunting in some fashion, whether it's related to a friend of ours that has shot a big deer, whether it's a celebrity hunter that we can learn things from, or or whatever. I can tell you there's somebody I've learned a lot from over the years, and he is the co-host of the Big Buck Registry Deer Hunting Podcast, powered by USA Trail Cams, and that would be the incomparable Dusty Phillips. What's up, Dusty? What's happening, everybody? Man, just uh, another great day, Jay. I say it every week, man. I just love podcasting and, and the journeys we get to go on. And, uh, you know, it's uh, something that makes your mind just relax and, and listen to somebody talk about hunting. It's, it's fabulous. You, you've been part of this whole endeavor with me, and I've dragged you through some things. Yeah, but you love it. You love it like I do. Podcasting meets deer hunting. It's just just this dynamic medium where you can dig deep into a deer hunting story and get down to some of the things that you will never, ever hear if you just watch television. This is where we, we get into the, the nitty-gritty, so to speak. <laughs> it's amazing. I mean, you couldn't have said it better. You, you don't get the kind of hunts that we're getting on TV. No. Like you, you get just the highlights and what looks the best, but this is like real. It's uh, something that happened to a human being, mm-hmm. another hunter, just like yourself. You know, it, it's amazing, really. It's just it's touching, and it makes you it makes you think about certain things that you can do to to make yourself a better hunter. Right, and we go through the trials and tribulations and the agony of defeat. These are the real things that make life real. And that's exactly what we explore here on the Big Buck Registry Deer Hunting Podcast, powered by USA Trail Cams. And this week's show is no different than any others. Um, We have a a really nice guest today. And I say nice because she is so likable. When you listen to her story, her life story, you're going to just say, hey, this person is fantastic. I wish they'd make more of this person. And the person we're going to be talking to is Nikki Boxler. And I don't know if you know who Nikki is, but she was... 
in one of those lists, you know, sometimes they have those lists online where they, they rank pe- the, the watch list, people that are coming up through the ranks, so to speak. And the, and this is the, this list was the one about the outdoor industry and ladies in the outdoor industry. And Nick, Nikki was on that top five list. And you'll figure out why, as we listen to who, to her story, why everybody is, is really tuning in to Nikki. She's just a down, down to earth person, positive, and she's going places. And we get, this is our first podcast. That's, that's one of the coolest things too. So a lot of firsts for Nikki in the last few years. And this is her first podcast. Yeah, Jay, Nikki's a great individual and uh, man, really doing a lot of things for herself and uh, got a passion for the, the hunting just like anybody else that just loves what they're doing. Absolutely. And I, I couldn't be more thrilled to have Nikki as a guest and, and just find out where, where she's been, where she's going, because I think everybody wants to know how old she is. We actually disclosed that right here. It's the number one question asked on Google. What, how old is Nikki Boxler? I'm going to tell you right now. You'll find out if you listen to this show. So before we get there, let's turn to Jim Keller with the Deer News. For the Big Buck Registry, this is Jim Keller with the Deer News. Deer ticks disappearing amid ongoing drought in the Northeast. This story was originally featured in the Providence Journal and was written by Michael Casey. The drought conditions that have gripped much of the northeastern U.S. this summer appear to have a silver lining, fewer ticks. From Maine to Rhode Island, researchers say they expect tick numbers to be down from previous years, especially for the black-legged ticks, known as deer ticks, which transmit Lyme disease. It's too early to say, however, whether fewer ticks could mean a decline in Lyme disease cases. About 30,000 confirmed cases are reported each year across the country, and those numbers have steadily risen. Scientists and state health agencies say they won't be able to provide an accurate assessment until later this year. This summer, scientists say they are either being killed off by the drought or abandoning their favorite haunts on tree branches, bushes, and tall grass, awaiting a host known as questing for the cooler confines of the soil. Ticks struggle to survive when the humidity drops below 85%. Catherine Brown, an epidemiologist with the Massachusetts Department of Public Health, cautioned that one hot, dry summer likely won't be enough to put a dent in the tick populations that have generally been on the rise region-wide. Predicting how big of an impact the drought will have on the tick population is hard, partly because ticks are so hardy and go through several life stages over two years. While tick larvae are active now, many of the young ticks, known as nymphs, have already gone into hiding as they transition to adults. They won't emerge until October, thus avoiding the worst of the drought. We will stay tuned for additional information on Lyme disease numbers for the Northeast. For additional details on the story, please check out www.providencejournal.com. Study shows some deer genetically resistant to chronic wasting disease. This story was originally featured on the Deer and Deer Hunting website and was written by Darren Warner. University of Wisconsin-Madison researcher Stacy Robinson and her colleagues looked at tissue samples of harvested deer collected for six years in the core CWD area to identify a set of genes, a genotype, that appear to make some whitetails genetically resistant to CWD. Statistical modeling showed that deer with a particular genotype were four times less likely to contract CWD, and if they did become infected, they lived 49 times longer, which was 8.2 months, than deer without the genotype. Robinson and her colleagues estimate that about 41% of all deer in the original CWD core area have CWD-resistant genes, which they will pass on to offspring. If natural selection follows its normal progression, deer that are CWD-resistant should become dominant in a few hundred years. This process will occur in a shorter time frame in those areas hit hardest by CWD. The implications for CWD management are enormous. 
those who still advocate harvesting large numbers of deer to try to eradicate CWD and or for CWD testing will undoubtedly take out CWD-resistant deer from the wild, slowing the process of natural selection. In the end, it's probably best to leave CWD management to Mother Nature. This is the best news we have heard yet about CWD. We will continue to look for additional information. For the full article, please check out the Deer and Deer Hunting website. The ATF issues warnings of more IEDs in trail cameras. This story was originally featured on OutdoorHub.com and was reported by Keenan Crow. The Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms and Explosives and Kentucky State Police, Post 10, have issued a warning that IEDs have been found in Harlan County. The Public Safety Advisory, issued Monday, warns that some of the trail cameras were found abandoned on pass in rural areas near the Dave Smith drainage area on the Little Black Mountain Spur in Harlan County. These IEDs were designed to explode when a person inserted batteries into the trail camera, while others were set to explode by a tripwire leading to the trail cameras. The first IED explosion happened in May, and authorities had been on the lookout ever since. An investigation led to the arrest of Mark Sawaf in June after police discovered materials in Sawaf's trash that were connected to an explosive device that previously injured a man. Authorities searched his home after his arrest and found trail camera parts, wire, and other materials that were used in the making of the IEDs. During an attempt to have Sawaf find the remaining devices in Harlan County, he attempted to escape and was fatally shot. With IEDs still believed to be in existence, authorities warn, should you come across a suspect trail camera or tree stand, do not touch it and immediately notify law enforcement. For additional details on the story, please check out OutdoorHub.com. Missouri Department of Conservation reminds hunters of deer turkey regulation changes for fall of 2016. This story was originally featured by the Ozark County Times website. The Missouri Department of Conservation reminds deer and turkey hunters of regulation changes that apply to 2016 hunting. They are... Crossbows have been added as a legal method during archery deer and turkey seasons, and also during the fall firearms turkey season. As a result, MDC has removed the hunting method exemption requirement for hunters to use crossbows during the archery deer season. MDC has also expanded the late youth portion of the fall firearms deer season from two to three days and moved it earlier in the season. It will now start on the first Friday after Thanksgiving instead of in early January. MDC has reduced the length of the deer hunting antlerless portion from 12 to 3 days. It now begins on the first Friday in December. The urban zones portion of the firearms deer season has been eliminated and the areas have been moved under statewide regulations. To help protect young bucks and increase the number of mature bucks, the harvest limit of antler deer has been reduced from 3 to 2 during the combined archery and firearm deer hunting season. Only one antler deer may be taken during the firearms deer hunting season and only one antler deer may be taken prior to the November portion of the firearms deer season. Hunters who harvest deer during the opening weekend of the Fall Firearms November portion, which is November 12th to 13th, in any of the 29 counties of the Department's Chronic Wasting Disease Management Zone in Northeast, Central, and East Central Missouri are required to present their deer for CWD sample collection on the day of the harvest at one of 75 MDC CWD sampling locations throughout the 29 counties. For additional information about the strategy behind these changes, as well as the dates for the Missouri fall deer and turkey seasons, please check out this article on the www.ozarkcountytimes.com website. Two charged with serious deer hunting violations in southeast Iowa. This story was originally featured on the KWQC TV6 website. 
In Louisa County, two southeast Iowa men have been charged after several deer were found shot and left to rot last winter. The Iowa Department of Natural Resources investigated and filed multiple charges Saturday, August 13, 2016, against Ryan Matthew Greiner, 30 years old, of Morning Sun. Trayton Hartman, 19, of Yarmouth, has already been charged. The deer, which had been shot with rifles, were reported to the DNR by the public back in January 2016. Greiner faced numerous charges, including 18 counts of unlawful take possession transportation of a white-tailed deer, seven charges of abandonment of dead or injured wildlife, and two charges of hunting deer with a motor vehicle, as well as a charge of hunting by artificial light. In addition to the game charges, Greiner was also charged with one count of possession of drug paraphernalia, one count of possession of methamphetamine, one count of possession of marijuana, and two counts of unlawful possession of prescription drugs. Greiner faces fines of $7,500 as well as liquidated damages of $67,000 for the 18 deer. Hartman also faced multiple charges and was found guilty of not having a fur harvesting license, one charge of abandonment of dead or injured wildlife, one charge of hunting with artificial light, and unlawful taking of a white-tailed deer. A total of $5,500 in damages was assessed. The DNR received assistance in the investigation from the Wildlife Forensic Laboratory of the Wyoming Game and Fish Department in analyzing DNA evidence relative to this case. The DNR Law Enforcement Bureau also expresses gratitude to members of the public who reported the dead deer, which led to the investigation and the charges. That concludes this week's edition of the Big Buck Registry's Deer News. If you have any ideas for future topics or have any questions about any of these topics, please email me at jim at bigbuckregistry.com. For the Big Buck Registry, this is Jim Keller with the Deer News. Thanks to Jim Keller for the Deer News. Without further ado, here's Nikki Boxler. Nikki Boxler, welcome to the Big Buck Registry's Deer Hunting Podcast. How are you? Oh, great. How are you doing? Doing quite well, thank you. It's uh, an honor to have you on the show. Uh, We've been trying to put this together for a little bit of time, and we finally connected. So our audience is going to be thrilled, and I don't know where you are in the world right now, but I'm going to find out here shortly. Uh, but uh, thanks for joining us. Yes, thank you so much for having me. I know we kind of went back and forth for a while, which is crazy schedules and things just popping up out of nowhere. So I'm glad we finally have a chance to actually make this happen. So where are you at right now? I am currently in western New York. Okay. So I was born and raised in New York. I actually grew up on a large dairy farm. So I grew up my whole life working on the farm ever since I can remember. I started driving tractors when I was about... 13 or 14 years old, did that all the way up through college. So I always joke with people and tell them that I can back up farm equipment better than I can parallel park a car. So (laughs) (laughs) just something I've been doing my whole life, and I just absolutely love it, and I wouldn't want to grow up any other way. That's awesome. You and Dusty are going to get along just fine. For sure. Dusty is a big farmer himself. That's very good. Growing up, farm life was part of your life. Yep, so I grew up on a very large farm in western New York. It's a family-owned farm, and to this day, it's still family-owned. My great-grandpa actually sailed over from Switzerland back in the 1920s, and he had plans to go to California to search for gold, and he got as far as New York, so clearly (laughs) made it really far, but... He loved the rolling hills in Wyoming County. It just reminded him of Switzerland and the mountains there. So he decided to settle down in Berriesburg. He started working over here and slowly started to save up and accumulate land. 
And then from there, my grandpa started helping my great grandpa. My grandpa started helping my great grandpa. <laughs> yeah. Kind of confusing there, and kind of took on the family business. And now it's on its third generation with my uncles now all own it and my dad. Wow. Okay. So what's going on at the farm now? Is is it still functioning? Yes, it is a dairy farm, and we milk about two thousand head of cattle. Nice. Right now, and we have 5,000 working acres of land, so that's just corn and hay that we use to feed the cows. Okay. So, and so people always, like, think I have deer plots all over the place, but in reality, it's actually, it's for our cows. We don't really spare anything for making deer plots. Right, <laughs> kind right. of sad, but everything is used to feed the cows. So it's a dairy farm, and the, the milk is sold to the larger places. Is that is that the main source of income for the farm? Is that what keeps it going? Yes. And it's kind of cool because, so my dad's side of the family owns the dairy farm, and then my mom's side of the family is actually owns the milk hauling business. So they kind of work hand-in-hand hand with each other, mm. and we sell all of our milk. So we have a clean digester on our farm, so we produce our own electricity. You, so, all right, so how does that work? Let's, let's dig into that a little bit. All right, so it actually takes all of the manure from the cows. Yeah. And so it goes through the whole process, let's see. So it's all collected, and it's actually in, we have a concrete tank that's under the ground that it goes under there, so it gets heated up. I can't remember the exact temperature that it gets heated to. Okay. So, and it burns off, and from there, it's made into electricity that goes back to the grid and to um, provide electric to the farm. That's crazy. And then it actually dries out all the manure as it goes through, so you can reuse that at bedding because it comes out completely sterilized, so it's all clean, and you can actually reuse that. No kidding. So do you use it as fertilizer at that point, or it, it gets another use? So, so it kind of comes out in different stages. So we do have some that we use as fertilizer, and then the very, very end stage, it actually comes out, and you can use it as bedding. As bedding. Interesting. Yes, for the cows in the barns again. <laughs> That's crazy. I had no yeah, idea. Yeah, we just got that. I'm not sure how many years ago it's been. Maybe five years, might be a little less, that we put that in the farm. Wow. That's some good technology right there. So. This is, I mean, that's, that's probably high tech compared to what the farm was when it first started way back when, when your great grandfather came to town. Um, oh my gosh, completely high tech. And I wish I knew all of the details of the ins and out for the digester, yeah. but that's kind of my uncle's forte. It's his specialty. He can tell you anything about it that you need to know. I just kind of know like the very, very basic right. of it. So okay. I wish I could explain more and elaborate more on that, but no, that's okay. Get, it's, it's, it's just impressive. <laughs> it's just, a, you know, it's, it's not stuff you normally hear about, but that's, it's an interesting how you can cycle all that stuff through and make it into different things and, and electricity. That's just manure to, mm-hmm. to electricity. That's crazy. The internet and social media is great because I can learn a lot about my guests and I, I, did a little research on you before we get on. So from what I get, I knew you were from up, uh, you're from Western New York and a big dairy farm and that you call yourself the farmer's daughter. Explain that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I kind of actually, I just put that in my profile ever since that song came out. Um, farmer's daughter by Rodney Atkins. I was like, Oh, I like that catch because I am. I mean, I'm a fourth generation farmer, I guess, technically myself. But my dad is a farmer, been farming his entire life. I was farming all the way up until 
couple years after college, I stayed there. And then about four years ago, I left and I actually work now full-time in marketing for a financial firm. And then I help on the farm once in a while when I go back home. So I'll just always be a farmer's daughter. My dad was born and raised that way. And I know he'll always be that way. So So you went from farmer's daughter, a real farmer's daughter, to marketing for a financial firm. That's That's a big leap. How did you get into that? I went to college in Rochester, so it's not far from where I live. It's about an hour from Barrysburg, New York, which is my hometown. And I took international business and marketing at Rochester Institute of Technology. Mm -hmm. So that's where I went to college. And then after that, I kind of worked on the farm for a few more years. And then I decided that I wanted to kind of expand my horizons a little bit because I just wanted to try something different besides the family business because I know I can always go back. I absolutely love my family, amazing hard workers, but I kind of wanted to try something new and learn new things so that way I could bring it back to them. Gotcha. And kind of help them out, yeah. Okay, very interesting. That's, uh, it's, uh, it's quite a change from being on the farm, um, but it's, the farm life is always, always a part of you, it sounds like. It sounds like that will never go away. Oh, yes, I know. I go home probably more than my parents like to see me. <laughs> I am, every single weekend, I go home throughout the week on multiple times, usually just because the woods are all out there. And I'm so I'm always going out there just, you know, preparing for deer season and checking trail cans or just hanging out, grilling with the family. And right. I like to visit everyone. My whole family lives really close to each other. We live in pretty much a 10 minute radius, my entire family. So it's great because anytime you go home, no matter what day of the week it is or if it's on the weekend, you get to see multiple family members. So it's just really nice to spend time with them. That's awesome. Now, I read somewhere that you you also have a maple sugaring operation as well. We do, yes. So that's my, my dad. My dad is huge in the maple syrup. That's actually his operation. So him and my brother kind of are the head honchos of the maple syrup on our farm. We have been doing that. I've pretty, I think it's been since I was born. I honestly don't remember a time when maple syrup was not in my life. Okay. And it's been really beneficial because I help in the woods tapping trees. And it's really great because it helps you get to know your property layout and your land more intimately than just walking through it on occasion and, you know, looking at aerial views. It's really great because you get to walk the property. You see where there's, different rubs and deer trails all throughout, and you're actually putting a line out for maple syrup to collect the sap. So it's just a really neat, different way that a lot of people don't get to experience because maple syrup is really only in the northern part of north, like the northeast part of North America. Right, right. Yeah, I'm very familiar with that. I think everybody I knew growing up did some form of maple syrup, and many of my friends still do today. They have their own sap farm and they compete like for the ability to tap the trees on certain properties and it's almost like there's a syrup war between you know oh oh, so and so got that piece and they and they 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 kind of almost fight about it at the sugar house you know and uh, they're all still friends but there's there's like this feud brewing between two rival syrup makers (laughs) it's it's amazing how much uh it's amazing how much syrups in new hampshire being processed yeah. Oh yeah. Well, when and once you try real maple syrup, you can never go back. Like I, if I go out to a restaurant and I don't, sometimes I carry around my own little mini, you know, travel size maple syrup bottle. But if I forget it and I go out to a restaurant, I refuse to order waffles or pancakes because 
if they don't sell real maple syrup, I just can't eat it with fake maple syrup. <laughs> I guess I'm kind of a snob that way. <laughs> but yeah, you're a syrup snob for sure. <laughs> for sure. That's awesome. Right, let's talk a little bit. Let's trans- transition out of farm life a little bit and start talk about the hunting life. I In one article I read somewhere, Nikki, there was the top five women that we should watch in the outdoor world, outdoor industry. And I forgot who the first person was, but she, uh, she was fishing and she was in a bikini. The second one was you all decked out in an, from uh, right up to your neck in camouflage. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so we're, you're on the watch list of people to watch coming up through the outdoor industry. Um, where where does that come from? You have you were on the farm, and that's certainly a certain type of life. But hunting got into your life at some point. Where did that come in into play? Yes. So my dad is a huge hunter. And growing up, I wanted to do everything like my dad. So that's when I started driving tractors because I wanted to spend more time with my dad. Everything he did, I looked up to him. I wanted to do that too. So after high school is when I really started getting into hunting. My brother is also a hunter. Okay. But I started hunting with my dad, and he's the one that kind of, you know, showed me around, taught me about it, and got me into it. And it's really been awesome. I'm so appreciative for everything and in the outdoors and hunting. It has allowed me to spend so much more time and form stronger bonds with my dad right. than I would have if I never got into hunting. So it's just been an absolute blessing to be able to share those moments with him. Right. Gotcha. Now, how did the farm play into your hunting uh, education, so to speak? Um, it sounds like you were obviously doing a lot of uh, farming for the dairy herd, but you had to be playing in the woods a little bit there. Oh, my gosh. It's actually been awesome for hunting because, so I was always, even just driving tractors in the field, so every time I'm in the field, you're like, scouting as well. So you always are seeing different animals, deer, turkeys, and you kind of learn just through driving the tractors, working each different field, what animals are where. So it's really helped me there. And then walking through the woods, hanging maple syrup lines, that has also opened your eyes so you can really just learn to tune in on certain things as you're going through to, you know, find where the animals are and their bedding areas and, you know, potential food sources. So it's just really helped a lot, the farming aspect of that. So you're basically out in the woods, in essence, or out in the field all the time where wildlife frequently hangs out. It's like a giant food plot, I guess. And so would you say that you learned a lot through observation growing up? Yeah, let's, let's say your dad wasn't around. Was there enough there to learn just from pure observation of wildlife mannerisms and where they, where they, they slept, where they ate, that kind of thing? Yes, definitely. So just observing everything as I'm out in the woods and in the fields on the tractor has really helped me a lot with hunting. My dad, so how he taught me to hunt was pretty much, which will like kind of go into my most memorable hunt story, but he literally, we would shoot together and everything, but my first hunt by myself, he dropped me off at a tree stand. Um, Well, I knew where it was, but that morning... So opening morning, he like dropped me off at the tree stand. And he goes, "All right, Nikki, like good luck. Here you go." And and he like <laughs> he left me there by myself. And ever since then, I think I've only actually hunted with my dad in a stand probably a handful of times. 
So we're usually always separate, separate, no but we're trying, you know, we're typing on our phone, keeping each other updated. So a lot of the things I've learned are through conversations with him, mm-hmm. walking through the woods with him, but the actual hunting and, you know, learning when you should draw back a bow and all that stuff has been through trial and error of myself. <laughs> gotcha. And there's really no better teacher than trial and error. Let's face it. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Oh my gosh. I know, and it's a kicker, too, when you screw up. <laughs> You'll never forget it, that's for sure. So let's, speaking of that, let's talk a little bit about your trial and errors. So your dad dropped you off at a, a at a tree stand and said, all right, I'll see you later on. I'll pick you up. Yeah. Do you, do, you so, do you remember that one day, that one hunt? Oh, my gosh. So this is my most memorable hunt ever, and I'm sure to the day I die, this will be the most memorable hunt. So my dad... Uh, dropped me off at the tree stand. It was my first time in the stand by myself. It was actually opening morning. And he told me, he's like, okay, Nikki, if you get a deer, like text me and let me know. So I get in the stand, like, you know, all excited. I'm sitting there. It's before daylight. And at daylight, I actually had this buck walk out, eight point buck walk out. So I put my gun, I put my gun up, put my scope on and, and I was shaking so bad like so ridiculously bad. He actually followed a doe out and he walked broadside right across the field. But I was shaking so bad that I decided not to take the shot because I just, I couldn't like get my breathing under control. And I, my like worst fear is just wounding an animal and not finding it. And so I decided not to take the shot. And so afterwards, of course, the buck disappears and I'm like kicking myself like, Oh, like, Oh man, like what, what just happened? Right. But so about 25 minutes later, uh, it might have been a little longer. might have been like, you know, 40 minutes later, <laughs> but still it wasn't very long. Um, the deer ends up coming back out. So he walks back out of the woods broadside, and this time I, I was able to steady my breath and, like, calm myself down. I was like, okay, Nikki, like, this is your second chance. You don't get chances all the time. Like, this is a blessing that he came back out and you get another chance at this buck. Right. So he walked across broadside, and so I shot at him then. <laughs> gotcha. It was, it was like the craziest thing. So then I like shot him, and I'm sitting in the stand, and I'm like freaking out and shaking. And so I text my dad, and I go, Dad, I just shot a buck. <laughs> he texts me back. He's like, no, you didn't. I'm like, no, really. I shot a buck. And he's like, okay, we'll just sit there for a while. And I was like, okay. And he goes, you know, if you see a doe, shoot that too. Well, some does come out, but I don't shoot anything because I'm, like, just so excited about my buck and I want to make sure we find it. I don't want to have to track two animals. So I'm sitting there and I text. Yeah, I probably got my deer. It was about 8 in the morning. So I I text him. I was like, oh, Dad, like, how much longer? And he's like, oh, not too much longer, like a half an hour. You know, I'll, I'll be there soon. He shows up probably at noon. <laughs> I was like, you know, sitting there the whole time, like so excited. I like can't wait to go like check this out, but I didn't want to. I didn't want to like walk up on it and spook it or have anything happen. So of course I'm going to wait for my dad. It's like my first year ever. Right. So finally, around, I keep texting him. Finally, I call him. I'm like, Dad, where are you? And that's when he showed up. Like I said, about noon. So we went and we were able to track the deer and we found him and nice eight point not my biggest fear obviously but it was just an amazing amazing hunt amazing 
first time out, really. Wow. Like, the first time with the guns in, gun in my hands out. So it was just a really great hunt and one I will always remember. So then me... I'll always remember the book on my dad's face. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so let me get this straight. You shot a, a eight-point buck on your first hunt out. I know. Isn't that crazy? It's, like, unheard of. It's not even fair. <laughs> I know, I wow. know my brother. My brother was so mad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, what the heck? That would burn me a little bit too if I were your brother. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, okay, so we can cross the most memorable hunt off the list. <laughs> that's that's fantastic. All right, so but a couple things came that came to my attention there is that you texted your dad. So that means that this wasn't all that long ago. Really? No, I actually, so I, uh, I got a cell phone when I was about 14 or 15. Okay. All right. <laughs> and so, yeah, so I've been texting for a really long time. I, and the reason it's kind of funny that I got a cell phone that young, the reason I ended up getting one at that age was because we used to use radios in the field to communicate from tractor to tractor and just right. to tell people back in the woods or back at the farm when we were done with field work and when we needed to pick up. Well, this was like at the time when people, like the radios were kind of fading out, you know, using those two-way radios. And they left me in a field on the tractor and it was about 1130 at night and no one came to get me. And I had to walk two miles to the nearest house to use their phone to call someone to come pick me up. Gotcha. So, and after that, they decided to get me a cell phone. So Nikki gets a cell phone from that experience. Yes. Got it. Yes. So, okay, so that's when you were 14? Yeah, I got a cell phone when I okay. was 14. Yeah, I started, no, but I started hunting after high school. I was about 18. Okay, all right. And how, how old are you now? Oh, that's, I, it's funny you ask that because I actually Googled myself online one day, and that was one of the, one of the top hit questions that come up. Apparently no one knows. Oh. <laughs> Well, we have to disclose am, it right here on the Big Buck Podcast now. I know, right? I am 28 years old. You're 28. Okay, so four, 14, Ooh. wow, that's 14 years that have, has gone by. And think all the things that have changed since then. I mean, you've got manure making electricity. <laughs> it's crazy. How, how long have you had the uh, the uh, processing plant for that, Nikki? Um, I'm not sure exactly. I want to say about five years. Gotcha. Okay, so you had to, you got some. So fourteen years ago, you shot your first deer, thereabouts. Um, no, no, it was about ten years. Ten ago. years ago, okay. So ten yeah. years ago, now from that point, ten years ago, I mean, you must have had some idea. You you knew you were going to go hunting. You probably listened to your dad a lot, is my guess. If he was that passionate yeah. hunter, before you even stepped foot in that tree stand, probably went over tree tree stand safety, how to shoot a gun, all that stuff. And, and correct me. If oh I'm yeah. Wrong. Oh, no, definitely, yeah. I actually, so I went out with my dad before that, but it was when I was younger. I never had the gun in my hands, so I right. knew all that stuff. Yeah, I actually helped my dad put all the tree stands up, and from the moment, the first time I ever got a deer, I, like, gutted it myself, processed it myself. Right. So we are very hands-on right from the beginning. Right. He, he actually asked me when... Because he's like, okay, we'll like clean it. And I was like, no, Dad, I want to do it all. So ever since then, I clean everything. I even do his deer a lot of times just because right. I enjoy it. And he he's always farming and really busy all the time. So I'm like, Dad, I'll take care of this. Like, you go do what you need to do. I'll take care of this. That's so. awesome. So it's kind of second nature to you. It sounds like so you're not afraid of it. It's not it doesn't gross you out. It's just you know, it's, it's, you, it's all part of the hunting life. Hunting. 
Exactly. Yeah. Yes. I, I strongly believe that if you are going to kill an animal, you should take care of it and be able to clean it yourself. So because I agree with that. it is all yeah. part of hunting. And if you can't do that, then maybe you should rethink why you're hunting. Right. No, I completely agree with that. If you, yeah, if you're going to pull a trigger, you have to be willing to do the rest of the work it has to be Absolutely. part of the experience. Yep. No, it's, yeah. it's a, it's an eye opening experience. No question about it. So, okay. So 10 years ago, I shoot you first deer. You're well-trained. You've got all this knowledge and skill set. And I want to get into the skill set a little bit. Um, but did that start a journey that, that you didn't expect to go on? Or is that, did you kind of expect that this is going to open up some doors for me now that I'm, I'm hunting and I want to keep doing this? No, I actually, I mean, I got into it because I wanted to spend more time with my dad. And it definitely, after that experience, it just, it really gets your adrenaline going. And you get, like, more into it, I almost want to say. But I love hunting, personally. It's not just about the kill or the trophy that you bring home. I love hunting because I love being out in the woods. I love feeling closer to God. I love seeing nature as it is. So I just did it because I loved it. And I got really fortunate um, when about, I think it was four years ago that Realtree reached out to me. They started following me on social media. As you said, social media has been a huge avenue for everyone and for hunters and just being able to connect with different companies. And I actually, so I was just tweeting about my life in the farm and hunting, not thinking about any companies. I mean, honestly, growing up, grew up on a farm, I wore mismatched camo everything. I couldn't even tell you a brand, really, of camo that I was wearing. I was never looking at companies to get into the outdoor industry. I was just extremely fortunate to have companies reach out to me. Right. And back then, you didn't care. And maybe you don't really care much today either. But back then, it wasn't important. It was a matter of, let's wear some good clothing so I can be better at being a predator. But as far as, (laughs) yeah, but you didn't really, as long as you put something on, that was hunting attire. You didn't care if it was uh, if it matched or if it was brand name or anything like that. It was just it was part of the hunting experience that you had to endure. Oh yes, for sure. I know. I have pictures of me in mismatched clothes, clothes that are too big for me. I look like a little boy. Oh my gosh! And I was reminiscing, looking at pictures like a couple weeks ago, and I came across like this picture of my first year, and I I literally look like a little boy. I showed it to my dad, and he just started yeah. laughing. <laughs> He's like, oh, my gosh. Yeah, those, <laughs> He's like, that's ridiculous. I'm like, I know. The, the old school photos are priceless. They really are. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. I'd like to uh, turn the mic over to Dusty here for a little bit, and Dusty, I wanted to see if you could uh, you know, do the gear check as we usually do, but also get into some of the styles of hunting um, that Nikki's gone through, uh, maybe on the farm and what other, other methods that she might have gone through since that, that kill 10 years ago, um, where she's gone and other, other hunts she's been on. Yeah, for sure. Nikki, do you carry a backpack to the woods with you? Yes, I do. So I always have my backpack with me. Before you get going, what's in the backpack? What kind of backpack are you carrying? I actually, so I have an Under Armour backpack. I'm not sure what the exact, like, make or model, I guess you would say, of it is. But it's just like a normal, you know, I guess high school type backpack that you can just throw over your shoulders. And I keep everything in that. And then I also do have a really old fanny pack kind of type, well, just fanny pack, I guess, that I also take depending on kind of where I'm hunting and how long I'll be out. Right, yeah, I understand that. So it's just a, a standard backpack. Mm-hmm. Tell us what's behind the zipper. Okay, so if you open up my backpack, 
I usually have, I always have my rangefinder with me. I have my binoculars, an extra pair of gloves, and a face mask. Depending on the weather outside, I usually have an extra pair of hand warmers as well. I tend to get really cold, <laughs> which is, it's just my hands that tend to get really cold. And I always take water with me. Um, if it's bow season, I have an extra re- release. And then I always have my tags, which are not in my backpack, I guess, but they are on my back. Right. Okay. Yeah, perfect. It sounds like a pretty pretty standard pack uh, material on your back, but it gets gets you through what you need to do. Let's talk yeah, a little definitely. bit about let's talk about your camouflage that you're wearing today, as far as uh, go from head to toe. And, and let's go. Let's say we're hunting November. Conditions are just starting to cool off. What are you wearing? Okay, I always wear uh, real tree Under Armour. So, and they absolutely have amazing base layers. So. From when I started to get ready, I usually have on like a normal pair of socks, and then I put on my 3.0 or 4.0 base layers, depending on the temperatures exactly. Sometimes I go with the 3.0 just because it, I do get so warm because I layer on top of that as well. So I have my base layers, normal pair of socks, and then from there I put on another thicker pair of socks, <laughs> and then I put on my the storm gear, which is a little thicker thicker more for winter and i usually just use those two and they keep me pretty warm but if it's really bad like i had one winter i was sitting out it was snowing so bad i don't even know why i went out really but i probably sat there for about i was there for a half an hour and i already had an inch of snow on me so when it's really bad like that i wear the base layers i have the fleece pants that I wear over top, and then on top of that, I wear the storm gear. So I'm actually wearing three layers when it's extremely cold outside. Good deal. Any particular camouflage pattern that you like the most? I always wear Realtree. I absolutely love it. I, and this past year, I went to New Mexico, and I wore the Realtree Max, which is absolutely amazing for that. It has a little more green in it, and it blended in, it blended in so perfectly with the rocks and the scenery that it kind of became my new favorite pattern for out West. So I, I just love real tree. Perfect. Let's talk a little bit about your bow setup. What kind of bow are you shooting? So currently I'm shooting a Hoyt carbon spider and I've tried a lot of different bows, but this bow, I just seem to always go back to Hoyt because I'm, I'm super accurate all the time. I know I can pick up my bow and I'm always shooting the same place and I just never have to worry or second guess myself. So I just, Love my Hoyt. Gotcha. What kind of arrows are you putting through the Hoyt? I am shooting Easton the torches. Any particular broadhead you're tipping that with? I kind of switched back and forth from broadheads, but I have been lately. I've been using the Rage hypodermic broadheads at 100 grain, and I've had great success with them. But as I said, I kind of switched back and forth. It kind of depends on my mood and what I'm feeling that season. (laughs) Climber, hang on, or hang on, climber. Ladder stand or ground blind? What's your choice? So it depends on the weather. I love, my favorite is probably just a ladder stand because that's what I started hunting with. And it just gives you a great field of vision. You can see all around you. So my first choice would be the ladder stand. And then I love ground blinds for if it's, if it's raining, you know, because I tend to get cold, especially in the later months. So the ground blind protects me from the elements. The negatives I feel from those are it really narrows your view and your shooting lanes. So especially if you are with a cameraman or anything, 
you get really narrow shooting lanes because a lot of the times when they have a perfect view of the animal, you can't you can't see the animal anymore. You don't have a clear shot, so it's really difficult. But I find one of my favorites besides the ladder stand is just the hunt from the from the ground. Um, back in the brush, I've actually had a lot of success just hunting on the ground without a blind in the brush. So that's probably, I don't know, it's right up there with the ladder stand. Those are my top two. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. Any particular brand of ladder stand you prefer? No, I kind of, I just switch back and forth. Kind of usually depends what's on sale <laughs> at the outdoor store. Gotcha. Okay. Let's get in a little bit about the terrain you're hunting there where you've killed, uh, sounds like many bucks at. Tell us what uh, the terrain's like where you're hunting. So I am hunting in Western New York, and I'm in a county that has a lot of rolling hills, so we have a lot of draws. There's a lot of creeks that run through, and pretty much all of our property is on some kind of hill or incline. I actually live in one of the hilliest counties, I think, in New York State. So we have a lot of draws that we're hunting over. There's a lot of creeks that run through, and I hunt a lot of woods. We do have fields that surround all the woods, but I typically don't hunt on the edge of the woods only during certain times. Certain times of year I do, but mainly I hunt inside the woods um, in the thicker brush, or we do have a few smaller food plots that are in the woods, and that's typically where you can find me. Gotcha. Okay. What kind of timber are we talking there? Tell us about the trees. What are they? Do you, do you know particular trees that are growing? We have, yes. We have a lot of maples around us, as, as you can tell, because we were talking about maple syrup earlier, but we have a lot of maples, um, pines. That's pretty much what makes up the majority of our woods. Gotcha. I want to get a little bit more into that tractor talk as far as, you know, the, the, there's a lot of people that, that ask me all the time, how, how do you know where these great deer are? And at one time, I was farming around 17,000 acres, no longer at that point, but, you know, I, I travel a lot of land and, you know, they, they ask and I'm going to let you explain it. I, I know the answer. Maybe some of the listeners don't. When they say, you know, you tell them that you spend a lot of time on the tractor seat and you get a visual and, and you're, you see what activity. Let's break that down a little more and tell them, tell the listeners what, what you can see from a tractor seat as far as, uh, I'm just going to let you go with that and tell us, explain that a little more in some detail and what I'm leading to as far as like trails and bedding areas and that things in nature. Tell us what you see from the tractor that helps you be a better hunter. Yes. So when I am working the field and driving around on the tractor, I'm always keeping my eyes open. So along the edge of the field, there's always woods. You can always find find woods and you can, I'm always keeping an eye open for the main deer trails, where they're going to be coming out. A lot of apple trees usually on our property you find around the edge of the woods. So I'm just always looking for those areas that's going to be high traffic for deer coming in and out. Um, you, and typically when you go back and you're actually scouting at night, even when you're not on the tractor, but later at dusk, those are the areas you're seeing the big bucks coming out just right before, you know, as shooting light is over, that's usually where they're coming out is from those areas. So it's just really helped me a lot to get a lay of the land and really keep your eyes open when you're on the tractor, um, to really scan the perimeter of those fields. All right, good deal. Yeah, good ex- explanation of what the tractor seat does for you. It's quite amazing what you can see from a tractor. <laughs> so, Nikki, I was just on uh, Twitter, and I was scrolling through your Twitter account, and I have retweeted in the past a lot of the bucks that you shot over the last, I don't know, couple of years. And I didn't even realize it. 
but you know, I find a nice buck on Twitter. Um, it's it's getting reposted on the big buck Twitter page. That's just what happens. So but I've it just noticed that you've hunted in a bunch of different areas of the country now, from New York, obviously, uh, Texas. Yeah. It looks like Montana, and yep. it sounds like you've been able to travel a little bit to do some hunting. And I'm curious about the different types of hunting that you're doing in these spots. Um, and what, what do you like about them? What do you don't like about them? And, and are their styles different where you, in each spot you're going? Because you're definitely hunting different terrain in each place, I would imagine. Oh, my gosh. Yes, definitely. It's so crazy. So the first time I hunted Texas, it, it, it is completely night and day difference from New York, let me tell you. So I have never hunted deer that you can actually feed before. So you can bait in Texas, where in New York you're not allowed to do that. So it's amazing when I was down in Texas that they could pretty much tell me what deer they're seeing all the time regularly that's always coming in, which blew my mind because in New York, you know, you you don't know what you're going to see. I mean, you see them on the trail cam come through, but there's not a certain area that they're always going to come to for feed. So when I was in Texas, um, it was actually a really tough time. I didn't even see anything until the very last day when I had um, my buck came out that I got down there. But they're not... They don't seem to be as shy, at least in the area I was in. They're not as skittish. I guess that's the word I'm looking for. They're not as skittish as the ones in New York. I feel like the ones in New York, they even sense something just a little off. They they are gone. Like, you will not see them again. They're gone. Where Texas is pretty remarkable. It's a completely different way of hunting than I've ever hunted before. And then in Montana... That was an amazing experience as well. Uh, I actually hunted from a blind. It was, when I was out in Montana, it was in the negatives. I think when I killed that buck, it was about negative 13 or 14 outside. And that reminded me more of New York hunting, only because you can't bait out there. And the deer are, I mean, New York deer are skittish, but Montana deer are completely crazy. Like, you drive down the road... I, they must not see vehicles very often, but if you pass them on the road, like just in the truck, they are gone. Mm. They don't even give you a second. Like they are gone where in New York, you know, you can drive by them. They're fine. It's just when you stop that they they kind of get sketched yeah. out. New York, they just stand there and look at you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So Montana was really cool uh, to hunt. And that deer, we actually, so I think I got him, it was like the third day into the hunt. And he, we saw him the night before and wasn't able to get a shot on him. It was just so cold outside. And there were, so the, the field we were hunting over was a barley field and there were Joe just everywhere. So that night, the reason I couldn't get a shot on him is because he just, when he did stand still at broadside long enough for me to shoot, there was always another deer right next to him. So I just couldn't get a clear shot. And we were actually fortunate enough that when we went out the next morning, like first thing in the morning, he was one of the first deer in the field. So when we hit legal shooting light, we were able to get him then. So okay. we just got real fortunate with that deer. Gotcha. And were all these hunts uh, public hunts or public land hunts or private land? Nope. So these were private. Okay. Private land hunts. Yep. All right. So these are uh, landowners that you had arranged to go and hunt on their property. Is that the way it is in Texas and in Montana in general? Like you, there are, or are there public lands that you can tap into? I believe there are public lands as well, but I'm not positive on that. Okay. So when I got to hunt, uh, I've just been very lucky on this, especially with social media. So when I went to 
Texas, I got to hunt with real trees, so they kind of set that all up. Yep, that And then sense. when I was in Indiana, I went with Buckmasters, and we actually hunted on Jackie Bushman's land. Gotcha. All right, that's awesome. Boy, that's a, <laughs> that's a luxury right there, being able to hunt on Jackie <laughs> Bushman's land. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's pretty amazing. That's so. <laughs> fantastic. You know, from tweeting some of your life on social media about your your hunting endeavors, um, that it's led to some other opportunities for you um, overall. Would you agree with that? Oh, my gosh. I have had so many absolutely amazing opportunities that I would have never thought possible. And it still blows my mind that out of everyone, you know, years ago on social media, like people reached out to me. It's just absolutely amazing. And like I said, it just blows my mind because I would have never thought that would happen. Right. What what prompted you to, to start that back then? I mean, social social media has been around a little while. Uh, obviously, Twitter. Um, which what prompted you to kind of start cataloging your life a little bit on one of those channels? Yeah, it's kind of funny. So I didn't start a Facebook until I got into college, and I was like one of the last ones to start one. All my friends had one. They're like, Nikki, you've got to get a Facebook. You've got to get a Facebook. And I was like, oh, like I don't really want to do that. Right. But I finally did. And I just realized, I guess, how beneficial it can be because in my marketing classes that I was taking in college, they would bring up social media and how it's going to be the way of the future. So I just wanted to get a head start on it. So I kind of opened it up, my personal accounts, just, you know, to get an idea of how things work. So that way, in the future, when I am working for these companies, I know the ins and outs of these different platforms that I can use. So I just wanted to be familiar with it. And then... I mean, I had nothing else to tweet about, so I just tweeted about my life. <laughs> you just tweeted about your hunting, <laughs> your hunting stuff. Yeah. That's awesome. And, and, you got, and you got noticed. And Would you encourage, and you have a marketing background, uh, would you encourage all hunters to have some kind of connection through social media and catalog their life as well? Or are there aspects of hunting that shouldn't be cataloged? Um, I definitely, it depends on the person and I guess what you want to do or how you feel about things. Um, I mean, there's definitely, there's obviously positives to social media. It got me into the industry, which I'm extremely grateful for. And I never intended to, um, you know, have that happen when I started social media. So, I mean, it gets you noticed that it gives you that one-on-one connection that you can reach out to people and talk to people that you never thought you would be able to, you know, talk to before. You hear it all the time with people are tweeting celebrities and celebrities tweet back, which is amazing. You can get answers from people and, you know, get your questions answered through social media, which I think before, you know, people would handwrite letters and you, you would never hear back. So I think there's definitely positives to it, but there are also negatives. Uh, you see a lot of anti-hunter stuff on the internet and just even just politics and everything that's going on right now. There's a lot of negative on social media and in the media in general. So for me, I turn a blind eye to all that stuff. Um, I don't respond to anything that's negative. I kind of just brush it off and move past it. And it's kind of one of the reasons that I never got cable in my apartment yet because I don't like seeing all the negative all the time on the news. Right. It kind of depressing and it brings you down. So I just choose not to have that in my life. <laughs> you know, it's funny you say that, and and I don't admit this all the time, but one of the most liberating things I ever did in my life was to box up every single cable box I own, put it in a, a old beer box, and every other electronic device that that was connected to the cable company, except for the internet, and I, I boxed it all up and I dropped it off. 
at the local distribution center. I said, get rid of it. I don't want to ever see cable again. I'll never forget that day. I know. It's such a great feeling. And so I actually, um, and it's amazing because you see people that are being raised nowadays that their whole entire life revolves around electronics and social media. And I feel really good about this. So I sold my horse um, three years ago. Well, we still have horses. My parents have horses. But my personal horse, I sold him three years ago to a family. Couldn't it be, could not be a more amazing family. And they actually, she has raised them so amazing, both their parents, their farmers, hardworking, and their kids still don't have cell phones. They don't have, they have internet, but they're only allowed on a certain time. Um, for like an hour a day, and they don't have cable throughout the summer. They completely turn it off, and their kids are the most amazing children I have ever met in my life. They're just so hardworking and so genuine, hmm. and so I always look at that as an example, and I'm like, that's how I want to raise my children <laughs> someday. Right. No, I think you're onto something there. That's, that's something I, I think we're still, you know, as a society, we're still kind of trying to figure this whole thing out, and uh, you know, getting rid of television is one thing, but now I've, I still have internet and my kids have access to YouTube, for example. And they, it's the most bizarre thing to watch them watch videos of other people playing video games. <laughs> I don't get it. It's, it's, it's like the ultimate and lazy. You're not even motivated enough to play the video game yourself. You want to watch somebody else do it. So I, I, I'm trying to wrap my head around this this world we live in, when you know I that was, those were so far from my head, uh, and even today the I mean I'm I'm plugged into social media because I need to be for this podcast, um, but that's about it. And you know I, I have some friends. It's really made some great friends because of social media and, and the podcast. Um, but in general, I just I, I don't know. I take it or leave it. Like I need it for something, uh-huh. but otherwise, I like I don't even want to see it. Oh, that's how I am, and it's so funny that you just said that story. It just made me laugh, but no, it's so true, and I'm the same way. If I need social media for certain aspects of my business, but if I didn't need it, I would, I definitely would not have it. Right. Uh, to me, the simple life is the best life. Right. Like, the more unplugged you are from electronics, the more you can actually enjoy nature and being outdoors and doing things and enjoy experiences. Exactly. The deeper in the woods I can go, the, the happier I am. It's just, this seems to be a direct correlation. The further I get from a computer, the, the happier I am. Yet, I still need it to deliver this show. Like, without that, I can't deliver this show and I, or find our, our, and connect with other people who want to talk about the same thing. It just doesn't happen. And we wouldn't have connected if it weren't for social media, for you being on the show right now. Oh my gosh, I know it's a catch-22 because every company that I'm currently working with in the outdoor industry, I've met through social media. So it's pretty amazing. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's still, there's still a huge debate in front of us, but it has changed the world completely. Um, it's crazy. So it's, uh, I'm glad it's creating opportunities, but there's still some stuff about it I just don't like. But that's, that's another story for another day. <laughs> so j- just in general, where do you want to take your hunting career from here? If we call it that, and you have a career in marketing, do you want to do more with with hunting at this point? So I would absolutely love to get more into the industry. Um, I currently work for a marketing or for a financial firm in marketing, and I would love to do more stuff in the outdoors industry that has to do with marketing. That would probably be my ultimate goal to do more social media, do more marketing. I know we were just saying how you know. 
right, right. See, this is the catch twenty two I'm talking about. Like you just you can't get away from it. You need it, but you don't want it. I don't know. It's just it's this weird paradigm. Yeah. So I've been fortunate enough to team up with these companies. I'm doing a lot of social media marketing for them now and um, hosting some on-air stuff, which is really amazing. But I would like to get more on the business side of things as well because that's what I went to school for. I really enjoy it. And I just, I like putting my brain to use and like, you know, really working hard. I think it comes from that farm, farm mentality. Right. So I like to give and offer as much as I can and really help every company I'm working with beyond just, you know, posting here and there and promoting their product. I would like to dig a lot deeper and really help them from the other side of their company. That's awesome. All right. Um, and I, I got to ask you a couple of things now, now that you deer hunt um, a lot and you, you've been deer hunting quite a bit over the last 14 years, um, as far as like, and this, this kind of goes back to, the tricks of the trade. What have you learned over the years that that you think are like maybe things that you would like to share with others? Tips that you or, or through your trial and error that you mentioned. What are some of the things that you've you made a mistake on and have been able to correct, or any things that stick out? Um, so I would say patience is definitely key. I don't know. There's been many, many, many times that I get impatient and I would like stand up and you turn around and all of a sudden you see a deer take off or, you know, you're calling for turkeys and then you decide to get up and all of a sudden a gobbler runs away. Like, <laughs> I think right. patience is key. And one thing that I actually, I'm, this is a product that I've never used. I actually was just introduced to it this past year when I was hunting with the Kiefer brothers. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Cause I, so I typically hunt wind. Um, I do, you know, I try to stay scent free, but I don't put I don't put a lot of emphasis on that. So because I typically hunt the wind. But so they showed me this product. It's called Nose Jammer, and it is absolutely amazing. I can't believe I've never heard of it before. And so, like when the wind is swirling, it actually stops the like jams the deer's ability to smell. So that is one like a recently new thing I learned that I think is really beneficial for other people. Gotcha. Yeah, the Kiefer brothers are great. They're uh, some. We haven't had them on our show yet, but we we definitely want to grab them at some point. But that's cool. That's very cool. Yeah. Oh my gosh. They. So I got to hunt a lot with them this past year, and I have never been around people that are more like hilarious. That make me laugh so hard. My, every time we go somewhere, my feet hurt from laughing. Like, and a lot of times I just tell them, like, guys, you need to stop. My cheeks hurt so bad. Like, <laughs> I've never had them hurt since then. They are just an, an amazing, amazing people, amazing group to hunt with, and, and it just makes everything so fun. And that's what hunting is all about, enjoying the experience. Right, exactly. Very much so. All right, are you, are you ready for the, the off-the-cuff 10 rapid fires that I've got for you? I hope so. We'll see. <laughs> all right, you'll do fine. Everybody else does fine. These are just thought-provoking questions. It lets us learn a little bit more about you. That's probably one of the funner sessions of the show. Yes, very much so. <laughs> okay. This one, we'll start off with an easy one. What's your number one hunting tip of all time? I would say be patient. Okay. Going back to patience. Yes. All right. We all have these things that we perhaps call good luck charms. Not really sure if they make us more successful or not, but we feel kind of naked without them. And if we leave it at home or in the truck and we're in the field and we don't have it with us, it drives us kind of crazy. And we say, I wish I need, I wish I had that with me right now. What's that one thing for you? 
for me, that would be my cell phone because when I'm sitting in the stand, I always like to text other people that are out hunting to see if they're seeing anything. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> Dusty and I will text each other when we're out hunting and I mean, we're completely different parts of the world, but I'm hey. glad text is free. Oh my gosh. I know we do that all the time. I like, we'll text back and forth. And I'm like, I'm not even seeing anything. And then, you know, as it gets later in the day, you're like, so how long are you staying out? And it, it actually kind of helps you stay out longer. <laughs> right. It does. You're like, okay, you're going to sit. I'll sit too. And then, right. you know, you text each other half hour later and you're like, oh, I'm going to sit a little longer. Like right. I just saw this. So then they're like, okay, I'm going to sit longer. So it's just fun. It's like peer, peer support, really. That's right. what it comes down yep. to. You always wonder if, yes. if other hunters are doing the same thing you are. Right. Oh, and if you are, if you are out hunting too, and you're not leaving your stand yet, I'm staying another five minutes. Right. Exactly. It's the best. It is the best. And I guarantee you that's going to make a difference in somebody's <laughs> kill rate. It's just going to, it's going to increase it. Um, all right. So what's your biggest pet peeve? This could be in life or hunting, either one. Um, my biggest pet peeve, I would have to say when when you're driving and an ambulance or fire truck is coming through and people do not move out of the way. Interesting. Interesting. All right. I have not heard that one yet on the show. <laughs> yeah. This is like my biggest, uh, yeah, my biggest pet peeve. That's it. All right. All right. Be, be, be careful if the ambulance is coming. I'm going to, I always do pull over. I've never not pulled over. That's interesting. But yeah, some people, that drives me nuts too. Uh, I'm like, yeah, I know it's it's amazing when people don't. I'm like, what are you thinking? And all I could think of, like, all I think is, you know, what if that's like, you know, it's some someone obviously needs assistance, needs help, so get out of the way. Right. <laughs> exactly, it's kind of common sense. They taught you that in driving school. You know, get yeah. out, exactly. pull over. I had a thought on that question that she was going to say that they when she started into when they don't pull over. I said for farm equipment. I was thinking it in my head. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! No, but that's another pet peeve. Oh my gosh, there are so oh, many times. Oh, I know you just uh, opened a box of worms, but no, there were so many times that I'm driving a tractor and I have you know big equipment behind me, right. like a mer- the merger, you know the rake and stuff like that, where I need to make wide turns. Right. So I would turn on my blinker for the tractor, and I would be going, and I would make a wide right turn. So you know I'd swing out in cars try to pass you on the right and your blinker is on that's another really big pet peeve man they're all based around driving (laughs) we'll talk about that after the show right all right you uh you're 28 years old now as you have disclosed to us and to the entire public of the big buck registry nation (laughs) and now that we we know exactly how old you are now um so what would you tell the 20-year-old Nikki Boxler, knowing what you know today? Um, I would probably tell myself just to live in the moment. I used to work like crazy hours all the time. I just thought I always had to be working. And so I didn't take a lot of time to go out with friends and, you know, go out and do normal things that a 20-year-old would do. Yep. So I would tell myself to live, live in the moment, live, you know, work, work to live, don't live to work. Got it. That's a great one. I live by that, actually. All right, so you meet a stranger in the hotel lobby at a hunting convention. They ask you what you do for a living. What do you tell them? I always tell them I'm in marketing. Okay. What did you have for breakfast this morning? I had scrambled eggs. Beautiful. Love it. How'd you prepare them? Uh, Just three eggs, some milk, and salt and pepper. Milk, salt, and pepper. Got it. 
Yeah, and I actually cooked them with Pam this morning. Usually I use butter, but... <laughs> You're out of butter today. I know, yeah. I need to pick some up. It's unusual for a girl who works on a dairy farm or it comes from a dairy farm. I was just going to say, isn't butter. that ironic? It's not, it doesn't oh, seem so right. Something very wrong with that scenario. Um, and uh, All right, so you get your own billboard. It's a blank canvas. You can put anything that you want on it. What does it say? Hold on. I need to think a minute. Mm-hmm. Yep. I would say be you. Be you. Love it. Like, just be who you are. Yep. You know, embrace yourself. Be you. Because there's only one you, and there's no point of trying to be like everyone else. That's fantastic. I like that one a lot. If I say the word successful to you, who's the first person that pops into your head and why? I'm <laughs> okay, I'm probably going to get emotional. I'm sorry. Okay, that's all right. Um, I I would say my grandpa. Okay. Um, when I think when I hear the word successful, I think of my grandpa because he always dreamed big, and everything he did, he did with passion. So he just enjoyed every single day of his life, and he did things to make a difference in the community. He was a pillar in the community, and he just always wanted to see everyone smile and make them happy, and that's what made him happy. So I would say he is my definition of successful. Okay. Very nice. All right. What's a day in the life of Nikki Boxler look like? Just a regular day, non-hunting day. Okay. So normal work day. So I usually get up around 4.45 in the morning. I go to the gym, get there by 5, work out, get home, shower, make breakfast, and then I go to my office. I work from 8 to 4, and then I usually... I, depending on if I go to the farm or if I come back to the apartment, if I go to the farm, I'm usually either shoot my bow or gun. I was shooting something. <laughs> All right. That's cool. And then, so if I go to the farm, I usually shoot and then I grill. Um, and then, and if I come back to my apartment, I'm usually just grilling. Very nice. And what time do you usually get to bed if you get up at 4.45? I know. It's funny because I know I've tr- I tried to uh, move times earlier <laughs> with you before. <laughs> I I usually go to bed around, like, I, I get ready for bed at 8.30. I'm in bed by 9 o'clock. Gotcha. All right, so we're we're pushing past your bedtime here. Oh, no, that's okay. I can stay up late. Okay. <laughs> I you can stay up late. You got permission to stay up late tonight. Good. Yeah, Excellent. yeah, my parents said it's okay. I, I mean, <laughs> it's a school night, but tomorrow is Friday, so All it's right. fine. Oh, boy. All right. As long as you're in your pajamas and you're ready for bed at the end of the show, then I'm okay with this. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm already in my pajamas. I'm set to go. <laughs> Excellent. All right. And finally, what does a deer hunting day in the life look like for Nikki Boxler? So it depends where I'm hunting, but when I'm hunting in New York, uh, wake up, hunt usually all morning, and then we take like a mid midday break, grill some food, and then if it was unsuccessful, we go back out to the stand at night. Gotcha. Very, very cool. So that. Not, nothing too crazy. Just your typical. Sometimes yep. when we grill, we take a little nap too. But yeah, you spend pretty much all day hunting, and by the end, you're you're ready for a shower and something to eat, and then you get right back on it the next day. Oh yeah! By the time you get in, it's late, so you just eat, shower, and pass out, and get up early the next yep. morning. That's that's pretty much the hunting life, right there. Exactly. <laughs> it well. is, and I don't think people realize how exhausting it is when you hunt multiple days in a row. Yeah. It's pretty exhausting. It is. I, I turkey hunted every single day during turkey season this year in New Hampshire. And that included five days that I hung out with my rowdy friends from Ohio. Mike. <laughs> uh, uh, no, <laughs> how is it in New Hampshire for turkey hunting? Can you hunt all day? 
No. Or no. You, uh, you, you stop at noon. Um, okay, that's how New York is. Yes, uh, in the spring. Then in the fall, you can, you can hunt with a bow and arrow. We'll talk, uh, we'll talk yep. about that off air. Yeah, Dusty will fill you in on his experience in New Hampshire, and it's much better than it ever once was. Um, uh, Nikki, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. You did a great job, and uh, I, I would I hope you had fun, and I'd like to have you come back at some point and tell us a little bit more about what's going on in your life and, and maybe get into some more strategies and tactics that, of deer hunting that you learn as you travel across the country and let us know what it's like out there. Oh, my gosh, yes. Thank you guys so much for having me on my first ever podcast. I hope I did okay. You did fantastic. You're great. Nikki Boxler is the complete package. She is down to earth. She has roots in the farming life in western New York. And if you are attached to the outdoors, 90% of the time, you are a grounded quality individual. I have to say that. Yeah. uh, You know, when when they say that they're a farm girl, that... That means a lot to me because I've been around my whole life, and, and farm girls are raised right, they're down to earth, and got a heart of gold. And it's uh, it shows just by listening to her talk. Right, right. She's she's a hunter. She's she's connected. She's smart. She understands marketing, and she's doing what she can to promote the outdoors. And, and she doesn't really, to her, it's second nature to be outside and 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 getting dirty and running a tractor. Yeah, it's uh, pretty cool and going to do great things for herself. Very much so. Very much so. So, Dusty, do you have a Chubby Tines tip of the week this week? I do, Jay. I always try to have something in my sleeve, up my sleeve for this. I know. You do. So I'm, uh, I test you every week, but you always come up with some, something good. So lay it on me. The Chubby Tines tip of the week is sponsored by Morse's Sporting Goods. Firearms, use firearms, bows, use bows. Located at 85 Kentucky Falls Road in Hillsborough, New Hampshire. Give Jim a call at 603-464-3444-morsessportinggoods.com. Your dollars go further in New Hampshire. There's no sales tax. Morse's Sporting Goods. You know, Jay, that uh, that time of year when we hit to the tree stand, and uh, a lot of guys don't like to share their location or where they're going or what they're doing. But, uh, you know, I, there's always that thought in the back of my mind, what if? What if something happens? What if the unthinkable happens while you're in your tree stand or in the ground blind back way back in the woods? What if? It always crosses my mind, and if it doesn't cross you as the listener, as one of our hunting friends, it should. You know, it, it, accidents happen, and, and nobody's perfect. It, I've been hunting a long time, but I'll be telling you that, that I'm not perfect in the, in the woods. You know, my mind's thinking hunting, and you know, safety is a, definitely a priority, but it's furthest from my mind to have an accident. So. Keep that in mind, and, and where I'm leading up to this is make sure that somebody knows where you're at. Uh, there's a lot of remote locations that you got tree stands hung, and you think to yourself, how many people actually know where that tree stand is if something happens? And if nobody knows where that tree stand's at, that could be your difference between life and death. That that extra 30 minutes they got to take to look for you after a, a freak accident has happened could change your life of making it or not. So either draw yourself maps to give to your spouses or your best friend, somebody you can trust. Just let somebody know where you're hunting at. You ain't got to go into detail, but at least get them in that general direction in the area where your tree stands are. That way, if the unthinkable happens, somebody can get to you. That's Chubby Tines Tip of the Week. Love it. Love it. Sometimes we overlook that stuff, but it's so important to stay safe and have a plan before you even step foot into the woods and let your 
loved ones know where you're going to be. Give them a map. I know you don't want to share that with all your buddies sometimes, uh, but at least let your, your loved ones know exactly where to find you um, just in case something goes wrong. So, uh, And give them a time that you're coming back. That's That's a big one. Awesome tip, man. So, Dusty, where can we find you when you're not hanging out here on the podcast in the Big Buck Studios with us? Look me up on Instagram, at Chasing Antler. You can shoot me an email right here, Dusty, at BigBuckRegistry.com. You can find me on Facebook, Facebook.com forward slash Chubby Tines Outdoors. Jay, where can the people reach out to you when you're not on the mic with us right here? Uh, you can shoot me an email, jay at bigbuckregistry.com. You can always, that's the best place, give us a call at 724-613-2825. Let us know what you think about the show. Speaking of uh, comments and, and opinions, if you are an iTunes user, please leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe to the show if you like it. And you, you'll be soon, 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 soon. You'll find us on iHeartRadio. That's coming. We, they are severely backed up. Thought it would be out last week it's not out yet but they're going through each podcast that was submitted and we're on that list so very very soon we'll be on iHeartRadio. you can find us on stitcher you can find us on TuneIn radio and you can find us on facebook facebook.com forward slash big buck registry twitter.com forward slash big buck registry instagram.com forward slash big buck registry and if you'd like to submit a buck all you have to do is go to big buck forward slash my buck thank you to nikki boxler for joining us on this show fantastic story love what she's doing keep up the great work thank you to morse's sporting goods for sponsoring the chubby tines tip of the week dusty i think that's a wrap a whole lot of big buck jay big buck big buck everywhere big buck i'm dusty phillips and i'm jay scott and this is the big buck registry deer hunting podcast powered by usa trail cam see you next week can't wait